there weren't many artists in the family, but my great-grandfather from Sicily, on my mother's side, Ferdinando Rotolo, was really artistic. He used to make things, he used to carve animals. He liked to hunt and fish. He was a gunsmith. He was an extraordinary man. He was from Agrigento, where in Agrigento they have the Greek temples, you know, Concordia, they call them. So he lived in New Jersey, but around 70, I wasn't born yet, he decides, he used to go up to Canada and Maine and go hunting every year. He decides, I'm going to go move up there. So he moves up to Maine, and he lived across the river from the Penobscot Indians. And every day, he had almost like a farm, but it was a huge garden with two greenhouses. He'd walk down to the river, fish, go back up, read his newspaper, have his coffee. He was very proud that he could read because he spoke dialect, Italian, English, and he read and wrote. Born in the 1800s, that was good, you know. He used to make these beautiful items. He'd make whole native villages and animals carved and like peace pipes and all the stuff tourists want to buy. People that wanted to go to the island, the Penobscot Island, used to have to drive right past his house to cross over. My grandfather was dark like bronze and he had high cheekbones and he had an accent. And what do Americans from Maine know about Sicily? So he'd sit there and he'd have tables out with all these things he made and they'd buy his Native American souvenirs. He'd on the island, look around and leave. One day the chief gets wind of it and comes over. Now instead of button heads, which doesn't get you far in life, just like the Italians with their cultural diplomacy, he go, comes up, he's looking, he says, very nice. He said, but you can't sell this stuff here because you're they're coming over not buying our items. He said, every month I'm going to buy wholesale everything you have, but you're not going to sit out here and sell it. I'll buy it wholesale and it gives you more time to fish. He bought everything, brought it over to the island, put their name on it and sold it to the tourists. Native American Penobscot souvenirs made by an honorary member of the tribe who was from Sicily. <laughs> Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Charles Vincent Saba Jr., retired police captain, artist, art world investigative journalist, cultural property protection resource and art loss prevention consultant and indie film producer who specializes in Italian art history. In the following interview, Mr. Saba shares how he has pursued and balanced careers in the arts, military, and law enforcement. And he describes his film, Defending the Peninsula, which deals with the theft of Italy's artistic and cultural patrimony, as well as his role in the History Channel television series, History's Greatest Heists, with Pierce Brosnan, in which Mr. Sabas shares about the Gardner heist and the pigment sample that surfaced after the heist, which has been linked to Vermeer's The Concert. In closing, Mr. Saba gives his thoughts on climate activists' attacks on soft targets like museums, how he sees justice as an abstract concept, and his hope to generate a creative legacy that touches others. Charlie Saba, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Would you start with describing your career and how it has transformed? I'm a recently, recently retired police captain. I did almost 30 years in law enforcement. It will be one year, actually, this February 1st that I retired. 
So it's been a good year of decompressing. A lot of stress let off there. But um, I started, I, I was born an artist. So, and I drew my whole life. I, I went to art schools. I went to a little school in the 80s, Ducray School of Art in Plainfield, New Jersey. It was a good atmosphere. And there I got influenced by really great artists like Dr. Fink, who lived up by Central Park, but came down to teach. And I got to go into the library and, and read all the books and about Michelangelo and artists, more art history, art historical. But they did bring us once in a while to Soho, where the gallery scene was pretty jumping back then in the Met. Um, one thing that happened there that was interesting, so it was 1986, and this is my first really interest in art theft. The There was a group in Australia called ACT, the Australian Cultural Terrorist Organization. They stole a Picasso, a weeping woman, and the, the police ended up getting a tip. It was in a locker in a train station, so they, they got that back. I don't believe there was ever any arrest made. I thought it was pretty zany and eccentric, pretty bold of them. And I cut out the newspaper and I put it on my easel. That happened in August of 96. And I had it on my easel throughout the fall. But in the fall of that year, they took us. One of the girls had won a, a prize in the illustrator show because it was a really great illustrator, illustration teacher in Ducre, Peter Carrison. She did a beautiful painting of strawberries. And it was in that show. And when we got there, the whole group, like they had to tell her your painting along with around six others were stolen. And I saw her cry. She was so sad and it it was touching. And I think that someone would steal someone's artwork. And then you start realizing it's not this zany, eccentric, oh, these guys stole a Picasso. They're hurting people. They're hurting people's feelings. They're hurting nations. In this case, it was smaller art student, but it was very emotional for her. There was a book in the library there, the art cop, Bobby Volpe. So I, I, that he was the NYPD art theft investigator. And I was reading that. Now I have this interest in art crime. I had to meet him, which I eventually did. We became friends. He was a big influence on my life. From Ducre, I went into the U.S. Navy. I was in the Mediterranean Command, never left the Med. We left the Med once to go to Lisbon, Portugal, and down to Morocco, Casablanca. And we went into the Black Sea, obviously. And there was a lot going on in Croatia at the time and Iraq. So there I got to see what I studied. I got to see Athens. The, 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 you know, I got to see the Uffizi. I got to see these beautiful places, um, Pompeii, you know, Monte Cassino. I got to see Naples all the time and Rome, which are UNESCO World Heritage Sites, whole centers of the city, UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And there I got to realize that I fell in love. I'm Italian or Italian heritage, but I fell in love with Italian art and Italian patrimony, Italian culture, Italian people. And in Naples, you can see everyone you saw in Ribera's paintings, you know, in Caravaggio's paintings, you can see them. And they're so, they're like born pantomimes. And um, and there's a great comedian. I don't know if you know the greatest comedian in Italy, in Italy's history, Antonio de Cortes. He was uh, a principe Toto. He's known as Toto. He is the epitome of this, the how they, they live art. 
life is art. You live art. And he, as a kid, would see these strange characters, like the grotesques of Da Vinci. And he'd see them walking through the street. And his his how he had fun, his pastime, was to follow them around and try to mimic them. And that's how he became such a great actor. He'd mimic people all day. And you could see it in their movement. You could see it in their life. It's so important. And that was a big influence being there. When I got out of the Navy, then I went into law enforcement. And I never stopped being an artist or loving art. I was there three years. I went in the state for a year and a half before I became a police officer. But in federal corrections, I worked a year in the witness protection unit with Pentiti, the mobs um, informants and organized crime informants. And it was very interesting. We had Joey Merlino. They call him Skinny Joey. He's there now. He, he lives in Florida, but he's from Philadelphia. But his father and his uncle were captains. His uncle was a captain in the Scarfo family. I had really great conversations with him. He was in for talking, and he took to me because I'm Italian. And he, he, he I, I learned a lot in there because even in the larger institution, we had very sophisticated criminal minds. And I was immersed in his criminality, which had a real effect on my artistic voice. I, we had guys from all uh, guys from all five Italian families, in New York. We had a lot of people from Philly. We had a lot of Irish guys, bank robbers and armored car robbers from Boston, South Southeast. We even had an IRA operative soldier, and I, uh, we had two Mujahideen from Afghanistan. It was really interesting to be there during that time. I didn't want to spend my whole life in prison, quote unquote. And I really wanted to be a police officer. So, um, but that, that was my first, now I'm immersed in this world of crime and it did. That's how it's that. Cause my life, like that experience in Italy is always art and life. You live life, which means you live life as you make a work of art. Art is life and your life your art is life to me. So it couldn't, the the two couldn't be separated. And I became a police officer and still pursued the artistic voice, the development of my artistic voice. It, It got a little slow when I became a Lieutenant. It was okay when I was a Sergeant, you know, I, I, like I said, I met Bobby Volpe. He was an artist. He was such a great influence because right now that I'm retired, I consider myself artist, you know, but I'm also an art theft investigator, an art world investigator reporter and a cultural property protection resource person. That's and I think that all are unified. And Bobby Volpe had the biggest uh, influence on me, but others did as well. When I went into and this is how I grew from someone who liked art as a kid to someone who actually learned a little more about the New York art world and art, Italian art. And it, and it all had an effect on the work that I produce in my art studio. When I went, when I was a police officer, I, w- I managed to go full time to uh, school of visual arts in New York. And it was very hard, but I was still young. I didn't need as much sleep. I went full time to school of visual arts and I did my full time police job there. I met these amazing artists. They immersed us in the New York art world. Our teachers, I had Betty Tompkins, amazing, an amazing artist. Andrew Ginzel, Anton Van Dalen, who right now, Anton is such a great friend of ours, our artist group. 
we all became so close to him, spent a lot of time with him. He has a show right now, if anybody's in the New York area, at the PPOW Gallery on Broadway. And um, I think it's 353 Broadway, but and it would be worth going. Anton lived since 69. He's from the Netherlands, but he lived in Alphabet City by Tompkins Square Park since like 69 or 70. And his work reflects the changes that he saw in that neighborhood, which one of the most awesome neighborhoods in New York. And so, and then there was also Brett De Palma. Brett De Palma was really cool. He he knew all the big shots like Basquiat, Francesco Clemente, Francesco Clemente, Mimo Palladino, and Sandro Kia came over. Someone said, ah, there's some Italians. They need someone to show them around. You're Italian-American. And he got to show them around and became friends with them. And a cool story, he painted Basquiat's portrait, and Basquiat painted his portrait as a nice-sized painting, and they traded. And he has that to this day. These people had a big effect on me, a big influence on me. Hey, for some funny stories, which I'm not going to get into with the old timers who were running the police department, because there I was trying to be an artist at work. I still also was a cop, being a cop in the art world, but it was good to be able to go across the river from Jersey and leave that behind me. And I had a place to go. All my friends were artists in the other boroughs and it was a getaway. You know, the art world was so different than what I had to do to earn my living. But that's the influences that led that just being immersed in that world of police and criminality. And it ended up showing in my artwork, which even at work, when we were kids, we used to paint our jackets. I painted my bulletproof vest. The guys got such a kick out of it. Like I said, the old timers who ran the place didn't. But and then I would make like bullets into bees. I I draw with the fingerprint ink. I'd make things out of the material I used. And when I made lieutenant, it got different. I had to study harder. When I had to study, it was hours a day. I'd study seven hours a day. For captain, I had to study a year. And then when you get the job, you're on duty 24-7. So for a few years, they weren't only separate. I kind of shut down as an artist. I'm just getting back to it. Last year was wonderful. The the documentary that's come out recently, that came out of last year, I believe. Or when did the seed of that begin? So I don't remember if I I did the application. It was a very long application for that grant. I got a grant from the Russo brothers, the big, they're great. And, um, it was a big honor and, and very generous to them. But I don't know if I did it in January, January was a busy, busy month. My last year, there was a spike in COVID and we had like 28 people out, men and women out. And I was leaving and some other guys were retiring it was busy. So I, I, it was either January or February. I did the application, a long application. And I didn't, and I was supposed to hear something back from him on April 1st. Now I, I retired on February 1st, April 1st comes and goes. I don't hear anything. I said, ah, it's over. I didn't get that. I remember oh, I, I did apply for this film grant. I wanted to do a film on art theft and illicit antiquity smuggling out of Italy and how people on both sides of the ocean have fought to protect the cultural patrimony of Italy. About April 4th, there's an apology email. We're sorry we're late. Ta-da, these are the uh, eight that nominees that won the grant out of hundreds. I got it. 
So now I'm off to do my very first film. It was exciting, and but now I'm scrambling. It, it was a deadline. It had to be done by September 1st, or you have to get the money back. There was pretty much the main rule was you get done by September 1st. Then three runners up get to go to the NIAF, that's the National Italian American Foundation's big gala in Washington, D.C., that uh, every sitting president has hopped in at least once, except Biden. But Jill Biden went. She's Italian American. So they were pleased to have her represent the president. That wasn't this year. That was last year. But so it's big. It's usually 800 to 1,000 people go to this in Washington, D.C. So, okay. I never expected to get there. You know, this is my first one. I'm an amateur, um, which you can see when you see the film. But I really put my heart into making this film. And we put a lot of hard work into it. So I'm running around buying the equipment, getting ready, making reservations. You know, we flew out to Pacific Palisades and stayed a week in California. We visited the Getty Villa. We had to go all over New York, which isn't hard because I'm, I'm really close. But we had to go to Boston, where there's a Boston Gardner Museum. Then we went and spent the month of July in Italy. And we did Gaeta where we have a second home. It's like our home away from home. But we did uh, Cervetere, which was beautiful in Lazio. We went to Le Marche to Fano, which was amazing. You know, so it was really exciting. And we got to see a lot of artwork last year. This forced us to look at a lot of collections. It was really enjoyable. It was a joy. The message of your documentary, it, was really such a, um, a compelling point that I think deserves such a highlight. And so I, I love your documentary just for that very reason, as well as the gorgeous scenery that you've just been describing. And so the documentary is Defending the Peninsula. And would you, so there's a quote that I believe one individual has in the film that really struck me. It's talking about the era of power and money over cultural patrimony and the work smuggled out of Italy, even before it was illegal and how it's gone into these private collections and museums. And so would you kind of give an overview of that and, and when that really started to hit your heart that you wanted to talk about that? So where do I start? <laughs> in the film, we started with Napoleon, the first systematic looting of Italy, which ties into where I'm going with this, because he looted a lot out of Italy. He wanted to engrandize himself and France by stealing all the treasures of everywhere he conquered. It was the first major looting out of Italy, systematic. This has been going on for thousands of years, but this was more recent in our time, no? And when those works that he looted from the Vatican, like the Vatican, uh, Laocoon, uh, major pieces, and they sent, the Papal State sent as an ambassador after the Battle of Waterloo, after he was defeated, they sent Antonio Canova, the artist, who was their artistic diplomatic representative. So the Italians are already starting, which is very interesting, to practice cultural diplomacy, which they are the masters of. And and I, the one you quoted was Stefano Alessandrini, who is now works for the cultural ministry, uh, the Ministry of Culture, as an expert 
consultant on cultural diplomacy. And so because Italy wasn't yet a unified nation and it didn't have the power militarily, economically to demand all of the works back, they got a lot of help from the British and other people stood up for them. And he managed to get like 50% of the works back. Then we moved into on the film, the Gardner Museum and the Gilded Age. And after that, we went to the Monuments Men, which is very interesting. I'll go back to the Gilded Age. I just want to say the Monuments Men, I'll touch on it briefly. There's so much written on it. And there's the Monuments Men organization. They, they do a lot to promote that history. And it's a great honor to know your country did so much to help these other countries get their works back. They really, it was a first in world history and they did a magnificent job. One, um, but with the Gilded Age, one, one Salvatore, um, uh, with the Gilded Age, that was different because the European museums started, were established before the American museums. In the Gilded Age, they already had beautiful museums loaded with artworks. In the Gilded Age, we had people like Isabella Thor Gardner, Carnegie, these really wealthy people, wealthiest in the world now, they wanted to fill American museums and they wanted to not only compete, but surpass the European museums. And they went around and they had dealers like the Duveens and the Berensons, who, those types who were willing to sell them works. And they went around buying a lot of artwork and antiquities. And, you know, Italy had laws early on. In 1820, where there was an ed- a papal edict from the papal states, which didn't, it only was, you know, lots of Umbria. It wasn't the whole peninsula, but they were on the books up until 1909. So in they have an early law from 1820. They already had a papal edict that governed exportation of works out of the out of the states. But in 1909, they had the famous first law of the unified Italy. Italy was unified in 1861 as a nation. In 1939, they had the best law yet, Legge Botai. And then in 1947, they wrote Article Article 9 of the Constitution that says the government, and it was became Constitution January 1st in 1948. Written in 47 and then 48, it became constitution, a new constitution, the Republic, which is in my film, because I think it's really profound that a nation would include, like we argue all the time in America, we take our constitution so serious as all nations should. We argue about the constitution and, and, you know, it goes right to the Supreme Court when there's debates about what it means, different articles. This one says they must promote the uh, culture and scientific and technical research, and they must protect artistic and historic patrimony. In 2022, and I'll get to this later, they also included in landscape, landscape and artistic and historical patrimony. And they included recently ecology, biodiversity, and ecosystems. It is a profound treasure of the constitution and people take it serious one thing I'll, i'd like to just add is 
the the concert to the Vermeer. So not everything. So they, so they smuggled a lot out of Italy, and it ended up in our museums. They smuggled it out more because they didn't want to pay taxes. That that's a lot of famous books about Isabella Stork Gardner and Berenson doing that because she didn't want to pay taxes. Or but even some of it's shady where the origins of these things are. So, but the Vermeer, which everyone's interested in, she actually bought that one. That was uh, owned by Torre Bourget. I don't know if I pronounced his name right, but he's the one who saved Vermeer from obscurity, realized what a master he was. And she bought that in Paris. When she bought that, I think she paid 19,000 francs for it. Here's this woman who went from the United States, born in New York, lived in Boston, went to Europe, and she won that bid in the auction. And she beat out other people for that Vermeer, the concert. And that established her as a major collector. Isabella was on the march. She filled that Venetian Palazzo replica, the museum, with amazing artworks. In the film... We interviewed the mayor of Gaeta, which I think Gaeta, and that is our second home, is exemplary in how they protect the, the, the it's a smaller city, but it has such so much cultural patrimony and this ecology. You know, it's, it's the cleanest beaches, beautiful water. So as far as article article nine goes, I mean the mayor was wonderful to interview for us and, and that that was special part of the film for us. But then we moved on to the Met and the Lisipo in, in the Getty because the, the Euphronius. So the John Paul Getty, J.P. Getty, that I think his trust started in 1953. So it obviously wasn't Victorian era. Now we're in a different age. But when he died in 76, he left his money to the trust. They ended up having $7.7 billion and became the wealthiest institution, cultural institution in the world, they had that, that fight with the Euphronius crater in the Met. And this all fits because how much changed after that Victorian era? Thomas Holving of the Met bragged in interviews about the good old days when he could go to Italy and buy anything he wanted. And he laughed about it. They thought it was a game, you know, and this was into the 70s. And, they, you know, they're still getting things back from these museums. These museums still hold um, immense quantities of art and antiquities from Italy. So they still have these antiquities and pieces that were handled by the notorious dealers. So this is after the Euphranius, after the Marion II trial and the Getty, after these museums all said they were going to be better behaved in their buying practices, but what they bought in the past by the same notorious dealers like a Borowski, Hecht, Giacomo de Medici, Bacchina, these are the ones that they still have those pieces. That, and these museums are full of works. Where did they come from? But little by little, as you prove that there's evidence it was looted or smuggled out of Italy, then they'll give it back, which was the case with the Orpheus terracottas recently. Manhattan DA's office, uh, Matthew Bogdano, the Ma Manhattan DA's office, presented them irrefutable evidence. They had someone saying, I dug that out of the ground and sold it. They, they, and he seized it in April. 
but they came out with their press release months later, like, oh, we're the good guys. We're giving this back. And we we have proof was stolen from Italy, which leads into the Lecibo. There was proof that Lecibo was on Italian shore. And that's in the film. The very important part of the film was the Lecibo, the Lecibos, the Lecibo, which they call the Victoria's Youth, is the Lecibo final. So this is a big, big story. And it, it goes back to 1964. It was fished out of the waters in the Adriatic by dragnets. And w- when it got brought on board, it's funny because some of the younger fishermen were afraid. They thought it, it was covered in sea life and, and then crustacean of, of the um, barnacles and shells. They thought it was a human. The, the captain knew. He, he touched it and he banged it and he could hear the metal. So they calmed down. But then the Italian law states that an Ita- a vessel flying an Italian flag, an Italian flag vessel that finds cultural patrimony at sea has to declare it to customs the minute it, the, when they land on shore. When it lands on shore, they have to declare it to customs. It gets registered. It becomes the property of patrimony of the Republic of Italy. They chose intentionally to smuggle it onto land. They took it out onto the outskirts of Fano buried it in a cabbage patch underground in a on a on a farm eventually they dug it back up they sold it to a local antiquities dealer who with his cousins and the help of a priest from Gubbio they moved the statue and hid it in the sacristies in the in the church in Gubbio they eventually sold it to someone in Milan they transported it to Milan all in secret and then it got smuggled out of the country no Export license, no license of export was issued, no registration. The authorities at, to this point didn't know it existed, but there already were whispers and rumors. So authorities were hearing about this statue that was found at sea. It ended up in Germany after traveling a little. It ended up in Germany, and a, a man named Heinz Herzer restored it and cleaned it. And then it ended up eventually, ultimately in London. In 1976, J.P. Getty took an interest in it, and he was willing to pay $3.5 million for it, but he wanted proof, he wanted documentation that proved that would assure him the Italians wouldn't come asking for it. He knew something was fishy about it. He knew that something was there that wasn't right. There was no license of export ever issued for it. Main problem, this was smuggled out of Italy. It was never registered, and there was already court cases involved because so there was a lot of court cases since since the 60s. The the original antiquities dealer and the priest and his cousins got indicted. That all got dropped the charges because even though they admitted they the the captain and the owner of the vessel, it was uh the Ferrucci Ferro. They admitted they sold it to them. They admitted they bought it and smuggled it up to Milan. But even with those testimonies, those admissions in court, there was no item to look at. They didn't know where it was. They never saw it. The authorities didn't have a photo of it. They were trying to try a case over and over again. This was in court so many times. And they, how do you try a case about a stolen object that you don't even have a photo of? J.P. Getty died in 76. He gave his money to the Getty Museum, the Getty Trust, and it now is worth $7.7 billion. Part of their agreement 
to keep that money, they had to spend it on on, uh, significant art treasures to fill the museum up. And again, that museum has 44,000 pieces in the Getty Villa. They really went out and bought significant works. They paid $3.9 million for the Lecibo in London and never received the documentation that J.P. Getty wanted to prove that it was legitimate and to you know make him rest easy. Interestingly enough, so the Getty tries to rest its argument in these court cases on the fact that they say it was fished out of waters in international waters, not Italian territorial waters. They also are arrogant enough to say it's not Italian patrimony, it's not Italian, it's Greek, um, which is ridiculous. And I'll get into that in a minute. They it, and so it went back to court because Tullio Tonini, a lawyer, and his son Tristano Tonini, they started a group called Cento Città, and they, they they petitioned the prosecutor locally to try this case in Pesaro. So it went into the courts, and this is when the whole Marion True scandal started, and she got indicted in 75, and the Italians were insisting they get works back. The Lecibo was one of the works. I think originally the Italian government wanted 46 works back. The Getty wanted to give 26 back. They were trying to negotiate through soft diplomacy. They never really wanted to put a lady like Marion True in prison, but they had her good to rights. They could have followed through and put here in prison. They had enough evidence for it. Um, but they wanted to practice good diplomacy, dip- uh, cultural diplomacy. They want good relationships with these museums, and there should be good relationships. So their approach is correct. But the Getty, and they let that, they let, they allowed her indictment to expire, and she never went to prison, but that was part of it, you know. And the Getty was said 26 works, but no Lisipo. And they said, absolutely not. They threatened the cultural embargo. And on the day that the cultural embargo was going to go into place, they came back to the table and they agreed, I think on 39 or 40 pieces, they agreed to table. It was an agreement to table the Lisipo conversation while it was in courts in Pesaro. They, they said, let's see what the judges decide. What is the court ruling on this case? That was an agreement, and they thought they would hold to that. They would honor that agreement. So they got amazing works back. The case went through the courts. Eventually, in Pesaro, they ruled that it was Italian patrimony, and it must be returned. because. And they ruled that not because of international or, or territorial waters, but because an Italian flagged vessel founded at sea and it was never declared and that license of export was never given. One thing about finding it at sea is that the captain and the owner admitted in the first conversations and some other hands who were a little more salty admitted that they were in territorial waters. And there's some experts that can tell you that what they found on it that had to be cleaned off of it shows that it was found near Fonnell. But the person who said that it wasn't found in, in territorial waters was a 15-year-old new deckhand, 15 years old. There's no way he would have known that they were in international waters. There's no way he would have known nautical miles. And 
I, I'll tell you, and I, and I even know this because I have a, a in Gaeta in the Mar Terreno on the other side on the western coast. We have a relative in the fishing industry. He's, he just retired, but he was on one of those. He they, he did the drag tallers, the the drag nets, that kind of fishing vessel, and they would go out one or two in the morning early. They they get ready. The boat would go out. The person who navigates navigates. The rest of them go back to sleep and try to get some much needed sleep. It's a hard job. They wake up when they get to where they're going and they throw the nets out. I'm I'm sure that's what they do in final as well. They get an early start. But when you leave, I, I, I was in the Navy. When you leave, when you don't see shore anymore, you kind of know how far the horizon is. Once you don't see it, you can't tell nautical miles in your head. So I don't, I, I mean, and then the thing with the, with the Greek, that it's not Italian, it's Greek. And first they tried to say that they believe anyway the Romans stole it from Greece. Do they have a psychic who does crime psychic work or looks in a crystal ball and says, I saw the Romans? They don't know where this came from. This was over 2,000 years ago. But to even say that, to start spinning these stories and these sound bites, is very upsetting. But then to say that Greek is not Italian because where were they? They have doctorates. They're they're. And even Stefano says it. Where were they the day that in Harvard or Yale or wherever they got their doctorates that these experts were asleep when they were teaching about Magna Grecia? And Magna Grecia wasn't just southern Italy, greater Greece. The furthest northern outpost of Magna Grecia of the Greeks was in Ancona, in Le Marche, not far from Fano. You could practically see it from the beach. The Greeks were, were in Marche. They were in Ancona. The Euphronius crater was made in Greece, bought by Etruscans and stolen, looted from an Etruscan tomb, but made in Greece. The, the, they have a saying, and it's true about our culture. Even Stefano said it, Stefano Alessandri in their film, he said, he laughed. He said, how can you say we're not, that we're not Greek and Greek? When it comes to ancient patrimony, una razza, una faccia is the saying. One race, one face, una razza, una faccia. Like Stefano said, we are Greek. We're Etruscan. We're Roman. Greece is is very much part of Italian patrimony and vice versa. So that is just ridiculous that they would start putting out these messages. But so after Pesaro ruled, they appealed it and it went to the Italian Supreme Court, the Court of Cassation. The Court of Cassation, the highest court in Italy, ruled that it was Italian patrimony and Italian laws were broken and it had to go back to Italy. Immediately, they come out with a press release and they said they were going to resist this all the way. They weren't going to give it back. They want to hear it from a court in California or a court in the United States. They do not respect the Italian court. They do not respect Fama or the people of Italy. This is bad. And they didn't respect the original agreement to wait it out in the courts and that's where it stands now as it stands now italy's still waiting but it has to go back i believe it'll go back i think that they want to they want to wait it out because it's been decades and the longer they wait they think but they will never forget they will never forget the italians will never forget and we're not going to let the story stop. Now it's getting, we're getting the message out there more. People are going to know about Lisibo and the court ruling. And shifting to a, 
another film that you're a part of with Pierce Brosnan. Would you describe the role you had in History's Greatest Heists? So Pierce Brosnan signed on with A&E Network to do History's Greatest Heists with the History Channel. Ray Liotta signed with him. He was going to do The Five Families of New York. Unfortunately, he passed to Paradise. So I don't know if they replaced him. I don't think they're going through with that project. But the eight episodes of Brosnan are done. And I can tell you, and that was um, uh, uh, David Scott McDougall was the director. And I know they did a fantastic job. It's going to be great. The, the first episode airs February 7th. I believe we are episode seven, The Gardner Heist. I'm in there. There's a couple people in there, museum security experts, the lawyer for Bobby the Cook, Gentile, the guy from Connecticut, they raided his land. I think they got a, a mob guy who now is in, a, in the witness protection unit, the FBI agent. I know there's a good array of people in there. What I talked about mainly was uh, the paint chips that in 1997, Tom Ashberg at the Boston Herald received. They were really interested in the Italian angle Bobby Guarente, Bobby the Cook Gentile, um, that because the, the the FBI believes the works went from Boston to Connecticut to Philadelphia, and that the Philadelphia mob got their hands on it. I I, I don't know if I believe any of that, but I think that the way things happened, you had so much warring factions, and I knew a lot of those guys, like in the Stampa, and like I said, Merlino's uncle and so many ended up either killed in prison or in the witness protection units uh, system. Bruno, Scarfo, Stampa, Marlino, like these were constant fighting, constant wars, constant convictions, and no investigators in Philadelphia PD, state police, federal, no prosecutors ever heard a word of this after all these years that major artworks made it to Philadelphia? I don't know. But I know they, they want to believe. They want to believe that they have wind of it. I don't believe the works are together. But like I said, I was discussing the, the paint chips, which to me, there is no evidence left in this case. Even the handcuffs that they originally cuffed the guards with, the two guys that dressed as cops, handcuff the guards, duct tape them up. All that evidence is missing as well. It's missing. The only thing they received ever that was real proof of life or a real lead was the paint chips. And when, when the paint chips arrived, August of 1997, and they don't really talk about back then because it's, it's going to be a 33-year-old case come this March 18th. It's the 33rd anniversary of the case. They don't really talk too much about what went on in the beginning. Now they, after 2010 and the, the Italian faction came in, you know, everybody had all these theories. It was Miles Connor. It was Art Thieves. It was the Irish mob, the IRA. Then they, they rest now on the Italian story, but then they might've gotten their hands on a couple things. There's no way that group of works stayed together. There's no way, but, but who knows? I mean, the but when the in August of 1997, Tom Ashberg says he was shown the Rembrandt in a in a warehouse in Brooklyn. He the next day 
He plashes it over to Boston Herald, uh, the Rembrandt picture of the storm in the Sea of Galilee, and we've seen it. And the feds were – so there was William Youngworth, a friend of mine, William P. Youngworth, who was friends at the time with Miles Connors. He was negotiating with the museum, but prosecutors were involved, authorities were involved. It wasn't directly with the museum. Um, to get these pieces back. He said, originally, this is after the article. He said, I want Miles Connor, who was in prison, I want Miles Connor out of prison. I want total blanket immunity with no questions asked. He didn't want to go to a grand jury and testify, get immunity for something and not immunity for other things. He wanted a total blanket immunity to any crime that was connected to the gardener. And he wanted the $5 million reward that was offered at the time. Now it's $10 million. Um, so they said, okay, but his word on it isn't good enough. you got to bring in a piece and show us. And he said, no, if I bring in something, they said, bring in something smaller. You don't have to bring in a Rembrandt or a Vermeer or a Govart Flink. Bring in a Degas drawing. He said, no, if I bring something in, I mean, possession of it, you're going to throw me in prison until I talk. You know, he's he's too shrewd for that. And he didn't he there wasn't a trust built. So. They wanted proof anonymously. An envelope arrives at the Boston Herald with several photos of the of the paintings, the backs, the fronts, the sides and a vial of paint ships, a very small pigment sample of paint ships. And it was from. Well, so then they had an expert named Walter McCrone look at the paint ships. He came out, he was, he was, he was a Chicago-based expert, very renowned. He came out joyfully saying, this is 100% unadulterated Rembrandt. So the FBI retorted as soon as they had it tested, it's not from our Rembrandt. And there were pieces of Rembrandt left behind. They cut these out of the stretcher bars and they, they damaged the paintings by cutting them. He said, these aren't, they said, these aren't from the Rembrandt, there's a varnish missing, there's things missing. These are from a, a 17th century dust master, but not from any of our paintings. So he ended up instead of, and they, and he, so Billy Youngworth believes they know more than they're telling. And he really believes they knew what they had. They had authentic material from a Vermeer. He wanted to continue on with negotiations there was a police informant who went over his house and asked him if he could store a van in his garage. He said, yes, it was stolen. They raided his house. They found a van, arrested him. They got two antique firearms and a marijuana cigarette, a, a, a roach. And he ended up going to prison, long story short. So that was, they believed, I'm sure they could break him. He's a very stoic individual. He's very resilient. And he's, and people like to downplay him. But one thing, it's very obvious if you look at his history, he established himself as someone that is trustworthy and won't talk. He won't talk. So they threw him in prison, and a tragedy happened in the family. His wife, Judy, died. And the son was little at the time and got taken for a short time while he was still in prison. Now he's, he refused to talk to them ever again. He felt betrayed. The trust was broken. They played hard with him. and. That was over. But 
and and when they came out and said that it was not a Rembrandt, Mansberg had already wrote in the paper 100% unadulterated Rembrandt. They came out and said we think he's doing some big hoax because there's a five million dollar reward, and he wants he wants immunity for crimes, and that we don't know about. But then three months, so that became the narrative. That became the soundbite. That's what everyone, and this was international news. So it was too late to go back. And he now felt betrayed. Three months later, in 1998, two experts looked at the um, the works, uh, the paint chips, and one was Herman Kuhn. Both experts in 1998 said, this is totally consistent with the Vermeer. And Herman Kuhn, an expert on Vermeer, did a study on that particular Vermeer, the concert. He looked at paint pigment samples and studied the painting and and did analysis in 1968 on that same painting. So here he's coming out. But by then, it was too late. The soundbite, the narrative was already, it's a hoax. It's not true. He said it was on the Rembrandt. Now they kind of believe it's from the Vermeer. No one really knew it, but in 2003, the FBI had the a real experts expert, Dr. Hubert von Sonnenberg, who was the chairman of, of um, conservation at the Met. And he came out and said, this is totally consistent with the Vermeer. It's like a fingerprint match. They didn't, Admit that I didn't hear anyone admit that until a Erin Moriarty show on CBS. Um, Joff Kelly had said lightly, but he admitted he said it's consistent with a Vermeer that the chips are consistent with the Vermeer. Um, but uh, I've, you had a guest on Jennifer Mass. She said in an article about these paint chips and von von Sonnenberg's. Um, findings, it would be almost impossible to produce a pigment sample that matched this particular stolen Vermeer. The mix of the pigments and chemical elements observed, coupled with the layer structure of the painting, make an almost fingerprint match. And they, so, and they said in the news, they keep things simple, because someone like Jennifer Mass can follow his report, and unfortunately, I never was privileged to see his report. I don't know who has, but they came out and said, they see a red lake pigment that was used in the Vermeer, the, the carpet down in the corner of the concert. And that isn't only what he saw, but I'm sure in the article or in the news release, they're not going to get too much into it. He saw much more, like Jennifer Moss is saying here, it, the, the red, the, that red lake is made, it's a cochineal, it's made with a bug, and it's very special. A, a beautiful red and there was they, like Vermeer's painting habits are very well known how he put on his underpainting what his uh uh formulas were for grinding paint what kind of metallic as she said the chemical elements what kind of metallic would you find this kind of copper or what did he use to dry his paintings and Hubert von Sonnenberg saw a, a DNA match with the Vermeer and and it wasn't just the cochineal element of the Red Lake. They knew. So unfortunately, that ship has sailed. And 
they try not to you don't hear them discuss the paint chips much this is why in Brosnan's episode they wanted to ask me about it because that is all they really had that's the only life of proof of life that's the only real lead they ever had here and unfortunately they chose to go one way the old school way and they were old school investigators back then that's how they did things and 33 years later the mirror is still missing along with everything that was stolen with this focus that you have on art crime and how you've delved so deeply into that area how do you see your current painting practice reflecting and extrapolating on the art crime issues that you've been studying all along i've been reproducing so i I do these fingerprintings. I was years ago, I was printing a guy I arrested as I'm printing them. And I had a one teacher, Alice Acock. She was a famous artist at school of visual arts in New York, a famous artist. And she once told us an artist is a hungry pig for visuals. A pig's always eating, always eating, right? The Chingali in Italy, those boar tear everything up because they're always hungry. An artist is always hungry for visuals and a new medium so as I, I never thought of the ink but as i'm printing them i start laughing what are you laughing at I said this is a good artistic i can make drawings he thought i was crazy i went right home started reproducing stolen artworks in like the chaitor tony of manet that was stolen from the gardener in fingerprint ink on fingerprint cards and they were and that was very popular i made hundreds of those i I still do that, but now I'm getting more into painting. I also went and started going around meeting with art theft investigators, detectives, anyone involved in art crimes, art thieves, smugglers, forgers, art loss adjusters, art lawyers. And um, eventually I'd like to paint your portrait. And the deal is you get one and I get one. I paint two. You don't have to sit for three sessions, eight hours a day. I take photos and I work with photos because no, none of those guys are going to sit. But I, so far, I have painted Miles Connor. He posed for me. William Youngworth, Anthony Amore, director of Isabella Storgarner Museum. Um, John Myatt, the forger we met in Chichester, England. Vernon Rapley of Scotland Yards. Also posed for me, Ian Lawson and Michelle Roycroft of Scotland Yards. I'm working on those now. Very respected, who I respect very much, Dick Ellis. I'm doing really nice full-body portraits of him and, and Mark Dalrymple. They posed for me. Um, I did Bobby Volpe, the art cop. He was the NYPD investigator from 72 to 82, one of the, one of the uh, first in America. And so I'm, I'm going forward with this. I have a lot on the East Hill right now. I'm only getting back into it since I retired and I just got my art studio back. So a lot's happening. I got a lot going in the art studio, but that's one that, so I do a lot of work, different work, painting. One of my favorite, I, I have a lot of favorite art writers and art critics. One of my favorites is uh, Jerry Saltz. I find him so funny and so interesting one thing is interesting about him. I like to listen to like a Martin Kemp on Da Vinci, an expert, a Lynn Catherson, these experts, right? They have doctorates. They know everything. 
Jerry South doesn't even have a degree, but he can talk art. He knows his stuff. And what he says is, don't talk. Don't tell me what you're going to do. Tell me what you've done or show me what you've done. Show me what you've done. His big saying is, get to work, you big baby. You talk all day and you don't, you're not working. So I'm not going to say what I am going to do. At the moment, I got a lot of portraits going of these people that pose for me. And I'm going to continue on with that. A lot going in my art studio. That's wonderful. And uh, you're making up for all the ideas you had when you uh, couldn't uh, make the time for it, I imagine. Yes. I missed the artistic life. <laughs> because for those couple of years, you know, I got to show at the Y Gallery. It was it was so much fun. It was such a great gallery. It started in Queens, moved to the Bowery, had a one-man show there. It was the smallest gallery in Manhattan. I think there was one smaller in, in uh, Brooklyn. But this, you had to go down into the basement. You look at the art in the small room. They had the wine and the keg of beer. And the police were easy going back then. They're stricter now. But we used to be able to go have the, the artist reception up on the sidewalk. Everyone would be up there drinking, talking. They'd ride by and wave to us. You know, it's stricter now. They, they have monitors at the doors at these galleries. Don't leave with a drink. But then it moved to Orchard. Then it moved to Grand. And I had a one-man show, on, and it was wonderful because it was so much fun, the Y Gallery. It was ran by Cecilia Gerardo Chueca and Carlos Montero. And um, it's unfortunately, it's no longer a gallery. So now I'm... I'm without a home, so to say, but that I, it was, it to, we were there every day. We were in the galleries. We were doing gallery crawls. We were in museums. We were going to performance art and I missed that, but I had to do what I had to do. I was, I made Lieutenant and I was determined. I actually wanted to make chief, but they eliminated the position when I made captain and it became an appointed position. So it kind of took the sail, the wind out of my sails. But God works in mysterious ways because I would still be there. I wouldn't have left them. And I'm so happy now, <laughs> you know, because I do want to live that artistic life. Yeah. Has your view of the role of art as speaking uh, to social issues, has that evolved over the course of your career? Well, I do believe Artists should have many voices. Everyone has their own voice. I kind of get bored if their voice is only politics or social issues, but I still respect it because I like all art and I respect all artists. I have a friend who, through the Y Gallery, Lexa Pora, this is interesting, it fits. He, while I was still a police officer, he had believed in the cause. He believed that there was mass incarceration in America. He wanted prison reform. They wanted to start in New York and he felt like people were being warehoused. And there was a lot at the Y gallery. They had a lot of really interesting um, conversations, artist talks. I, I were, I took part in some of them and it, he got to spread his message that way. One of before his show, he had a show at the Y gallery. He, him and friends of ours, made a real cage it looked like something you go down to see the sharks you want to go see a great white shark but it was supposed to be a cell he got into a orange jumpsuit they welded him into the cage he had a beard orange jumpsuit it's really it's really a, a great concept they slid him in and they went down to the manhattan 
detention center. It was a Sunday, so but traffic's still heavy. And they dumped him right in the middle of the intersection, standing up, handcuffed. Now he's standing there, and his, he was protesting. He wanted prison reform in New York. And I swore they were going to throw the book at him. You know, one time an artist from SVA put a box. It was uh, after 9-11, so it was, they were very touchy. But he put a box, why should you fear, in the subway platform. And they arrested him because he caused some panic. I said, oh, they're going to they're gonna throw the book at Leck. They're going to be so rough on him. Interesting enough, the police arrived. They know what they're doing in the NYPD, and they've dealt with artists so long. They know this is he, – he had a little sign saying, I'm Leck. This is a performance art. I'm protesting prison reform. So the police arrived real fast. He wasn't there that long. Um, they pushed him to the side so the traffic would flow. And then they gave him things to cover his eyes, and they got out. They had to cut him out of that thing, and sparks flew. Then they they got him out. They handcuffed him, but they were really nice to him. The NYPD were really nice to him. They brought him in. They're like, ah, it's just another one. This is, you know, an artist in New York. <laughs> Guys with a sense of humor, I guess. But even you got to think, the supervisors on at that time, he did get charged with, like, disorderly person type things but they didn't throw the book at them and they actually treated them really nice and they said ah, it's a good concept you know but so so let me go on i got carried away with that story but yesterday, there's one piece that has to do with the gardener sophie cow who i really like i have a lot of her great books i bought at the art galleries and she gave lectures at sva a lot but she went to the gardener after it was robbed and she did last scene where she would go and interview the guards I think this is a really great concept, and she wanted to see if, like, what did the what did the victim look like? You stand in front of this Rembrandt's lady and gentleman in black, or the the Govart Flink, or the Vermeer. What did the what did they look like? And see if the person who looked at it every day could actually describe it. I thought that was very interesting. What are your thoughts about the climate activists and the current actions that they've had against certain artworks, even when they've been protected or not protected? So I'm very emotional about this because I want to fight for ecology and the environment, but I am a zealot, zealously dedicated to cultural patrimony and art and especially Italian cultural patrimony. And it is, the cultural activists that are gluing themselves to, so I have a column now at La Voce di New York, the Italian media outlet in New York, Italian language, but we also have English language. And I did an article on this and the title was keep your hands off of our art. But I'd like to go back before I say anything. First of all, these people don't have courage, right? They're vandals. They're not really fighting for the ecology. They're attacking the ecology, in my mind, right? And if they had courage, they wouldn't be attacking what police and law enforcement call a soft target. A museum's a soft target. La, 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 life is friendly. The guards, they're, they're not armed. There might be one or two in there you don't know about, but they're not going to get rough with them. They're going to gingerly take the sol solution, get their hands off, and take them away. And... If you if you have courage and you're fighting against the oil companies, take your fight to the oil companies. But you know that's a hard target. You're not going to get very far, and they're not going to be nice to you. They're not going to be polite with you, right? 
But as an Italian artist, as an Italian, I'm both American and Italian. The I'll go back to Article 9, which we feel is sacred. Article 9 says the Republic must protect landscape and artistic and historic heritage. So right there, that is sacred. Do not touch our artistic patrimony. But in, in 2020, landscape was there. But in 2020, they, they gloriously included environment, ecology, ecosystems, and biodiversity in Article 9 with landscape. So now there is a constitution in the world that not only protects patrimony and artistic patrimony and landscape, but also says it must protect ecology, biodiversity. The Italians see it as one patrimony. It is patrimony of humanity. Your artwork and historic treasures are patrimony of humanity. And our ecology and our environment is patrimony of humanity. And most of those people in those cultural institutions, the guests, the curators, the artists who paint works in the galleries, most of them are on your side. They want them to save the planet. They want to protect ecology. What is, are you trying to be like a, a Marcel Duchamp Dadaist, or you're trying to be like the, the futurist said, tear down the museums? What is the point here to go harass and the museum goers? You know, you want to bring your grandma, she loves art. That's only the light part of it. You're, you're, you know, I bring my grandma there. It's the one day she could get out and now she can't go see the piece. But other than that, eventually someone was about to hurt something. They say, oh, we don't harm anything. It's it, Eventually something was going to get harmed. And there's, it, it's deeper than this, right? Because artists like to go and look at things close. A lot of writers like to see it from far away. Like I'll step back and see it. An artist wants to go right up to their nose and look at it, right? And now I was in the National Gallery of Art not long ago in Washington, and they came right up on me, which I'm glad they're doing their job. They're all on edge. But, hey, do I look like I'm about to glue my hand to the – but, unfortunately, now there's going to be more restrictions. <clears throat> it's not going to be as pleasurable for the, for the viewer to see. But, again, I still will double down and say, in my mind, art and ecology, art and environment, patrimony, cultural patrimony and the patrimony of humanity that is environment is one and the same so I, I don't agree with them at all I would love to hear your thoughts on how you define justice and how you see all the work that you're doing as facilitating justice justice for me I think is an abstract concept and it changes from ethnic group to ethnic group, nation to nation, and over the years. There was once eye for eye, blood for blood. There was once justice for victims, justice for cops, now justice for prisoners, justice for who was arrested by the cops. And it's only, and for a cop, justice is what society tells you it is. I'm not a cop, I'm an artist, but I was a cop, and I understood that. You might not agree with the law. I used to hate arresting guys. We had a motor vehicles not far from our, our police station. And for years, the illegal immigrants would, they, there was groups that would sneak them in to one line and they had op operatives that would give them a, a real license, but they were given fake 
IDs they were presenting, which is a third degree crime. And um, every now and then they'd get caught because they'd go to the wrong line. And the people were taking a lot of money for this, the bad guys. And I arrested so many. I had to. It was the law. And they would cry. we handcuffed to the wall. Criminals don't cry. But here I got grown men crying. I drive a truck for a living. I got a wife and kids. How am I going to work? I don't know what to tell you. You know, the law is the law. So and even with like marijuana, one time it was illegal. Now it's legal in New Jersey. The law is is the law. And who who tells the cop it's the justice is society or it never it really the ju- the justices and who decides case law. But it is an abstract and it, it, it's it's you, I just don't think we can say justice is. And Elise was the perfect example because the highest court that should be respected, a respectable court, serious people, a highest court in Italy says that Lisipo has to be returned to get he doesn't respect their, their ruling. Well, now we've got to hear from an American court, you know, so I do respect justice. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I do believe it changes and it evolves, I think will be the best way is how my years in the justice system working for justice has it has evolved so much right before my eyes in those years and and one last question then is what do you see as the legacy that you're creating with the the array of work that you are doing and have done well simply all i need is to touch people's lives i i gotta relate this because this i learned a lot from experience i was sitting in front Years ago, over 20 years ago, I'm sitting in front of the National Gallery, the the uh, National Arts Club and the Players Club on South Gramercy. There's a, a bench there and it was a nice fall day and it was the high holidays for the Jewish temple was right there at the synagogue and it was during their high holidays and everyone's walking to the synagogue. And this little old lady is walking by me and she turns, walks right up to me and says, I don't mean to bother you, but I wanted to tell you you have a lovely face. And I was blown away. I 22nd interaction with this woman. I said, thank you. She was like an angel. She smiled and walked away, went to the synagogue. I thought about her all day. I had a smile on my face all day. And here, 20 years later, I remember her. 20 seconds interaction with a human. And if they can touch your life in 20 seconds, an artist can touch your life. I, in the Navy was on the ship, always in the middle of the med, looking at the Milky Way. You could see the whole Milky Way out there. It's amazing, like in a National Geographic photo. When I stood under Michelangelo's ceiling in the Sistine Chapel, I felt like I was looking at the Milky Way. Man can't match God, but he was close. He came close. Who can match Michelangelo, right? And if I can in, in any way touch someone's life, and be a creative force. That's that's my goal now. My goals now are to improve and my legacy, I want them to look back and say, man, he was creative. He was a creative force, something along that line. If I can touch people's lives, I'm happy. There will be links in the show notes to learn more about Mr. Saba and his work. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on your preferred platform, And if you'd like to support more episodes like this, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating 
or review. You can also leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast or email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. And the podcast Patreon page has rewards for those interested at patreon.com forward slash warfareofartandlaw. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.